This episode of the Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Nori. Feeling left out of carbon markets? Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com growers. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture. It's me, your host, Damian Mason. You knew that because you knew that when you tuned in. It already said so in the introduction. Got a great show for you today because I have a great guest. His name is Jack Bobo. Jack and I met each other on the road. Uh, he, he speaks at conferences. Uh, he writes books. He does a lot of stuff. And he also has a role now with the Nature Conservancy. So I wanted to bring him in because he always gives really good perspective. Sometimes we disagree, but that's healthy. Uh, we, we are not the kind of people here on the business of agriculture who require safe spaces. We think disagreement is good. It means that we're both thinking. Uh, Jack's going to talk to us also about his role at the Nature Conservancy and a few other things as it relates to agriculture. You know, one thing that we always try to do, dear listener, is bring in outside perspective. Uh, agriculture is a small fraternity. It also can become an echo chamber. Uh, if you spend any time on Twitter, there's a lot of people talking to themselves about themselves. And I always say this about agriculture. If agriculture was a person, we'd be that crazy guy at the park who's like sitting on the park bench muttering to himself because we do a lot of talking to ourselves. So that's why I'm here for you. I'm bringing in people like my man, Jack, who gives us outside perspective and uh, some things that maybe you don't normally hear in, uh, in, our, uh, in our jobs in agriculture. Mr. Bobo, thanks for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Really glad to have be on your program. All right. So um, real quickly, you do a better job of your own biographical stuff. The last time I saw you, you gave me your book, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. You're an ag kind of guy who's not really ever been in ag. You're not from a farming background. You went to a, a liberal arts school, the, uh, the other state university here in my home state of Indiana called Indiana University. Uh, you got a whole bunch of degrees, none of which are in agriculture, but you kind of found your way here after being in the Peace Corps and working in the Washington, D.C. establishment. And here you are now kind of an ag and food guy. Last time I saw you was at a conference in Arizona, where you're talking to people that were vegetable, it was a vegetable conference for influencers of all things. So kind of give us the lowdown on what the hell you're doing. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, you know, uh, it, it's great talking to you. I wish I was back in Indiana right now where all my family is. Um, though, you know, you're, you're right. I didn't grow up in agriculture, but we did have cornfields that literally came up to my back, my back door, or my backyard. So I grew up very, very close to ag. And I also grew up with a family garden that was about a quarter of the size of a football field. So we, we did grow uh, corn, peppers, tomatoes, uh, cantaloupes, watermelons, strawberries. Uh, you know, we, my mother canned everything. And so I like to tell people that, you know, we were basically subsistence farmers. Um, I didn't necessarily enjoy a day of working with the rototiller in the, that uh, field every, every summer. Um, but I knew what real agriculture looked like, and I knew what we were doing was not it. Mm -hmm. uh, we were also all organic because we had child labor, which was me and my brothers. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I thought that, you know, the last thing I ever was going to do was be involved in anything that looked like agriculture. But, you know, I 
I went away to grad school. I studied international law and uh, environmental policy. And I thought, you know, I want to work on global uh, forest issues and things like that. And I went to work for the U.S. Department of State. And I ended up in the Office of Food Policy, though, instead of the Office of Environmental Science. And it didn't take me long to realize that all the things that I cared about um, in terms of water and forest and everything were most impacted by ag. And that if the part of the State Department that dealt with forest and climate and all those things didn't do ag. And so I realized that in order to protect the forest and other things, you need to make sure that people are sustainably and nutritiously fed. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, a lot of the problems actually go away. And so, you know, I, I became very passionate, have spent the last, you know, 20 plus years figuring out how do we sustainably and nutritiously feed people and how do we allow the rest of it to take care of itself because we're doing a good job? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you and I, uh, like I said, we, we have some, uh, some good creative disagreement, but there's the other thing that we agree upon. First off, uh, if you asked the average person to define the word sustainable, ask a hundred people, you get a hundred different answers. You know, for some people, sustainable means yeah. small. It means quaint. It means <laughs> organic. It means farmer's markets. It means whatever. And the reality is modern agriculture is more sustainable than it's, than it's ever been for the 10,000 year history. We are producing food calories with less resources than we ever have less natural resources per calorie produced than has ever happened happened in 10,000 years. And you say, well, well, why should an environmentalist care? An environmentalist should applaud that because that means less degradation of the environment, less acres that we need to use, et cetera, et cetera. And you get that. Um, I'm not sure that uh, most, most people do. And um, when you say about nutritiously feeding people, we know that ag has an outsized impact on the environment. You know, we, we know that we use a lot of acres, we use water, we do all that stuff. But what is our alternative? Uh, you, you know, and so that's why when these countries, when these people in these poor countries are degrading their environment, it's because they're starving. Uh, you know, when you're when you're starving, you'll do whatever it takes to eat, right? You know, if it means burning down the forest and planting some crops, that's what you do, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you look at the places that you know are the most developed and are producing the the most food. You know, in terms of intensification, they're also expanding their forests. You know, so North America, Europe, places like that. You know, that have been farming for a very long time, they're also expanding forest. And so, you know, there there's that sustainable intensification. But you know, I think you know, on one hand, we need to be more intensive in how we produce food, but we also need to do it better. You know, every year. And I think that's where there's a little bit of a mismatch is that for consumers, when they think about sustainability, they think using less water, less fertilizer, less insecticide equals more sustainable. And that may be true for that small farm, but the problem is that you know, you're going to produce less food because there's a reason farmers use inputs and somebody else, someplace else is going to have to make up the difference. And usually it's a place that is less capable of doing it in a sustainable way. And, you know, I think Europe is a perfect example of this, that, you know, Europe is pushing for reductions in fertilizer insecticides and 25% organic by 2030 under their farm to fork strategy. And the country that sends the most food to Europe is Brazil. And so in many ways, Europe is exporting its environmental footprint to arguably the most biodiverse country on the planet. And that might not be a great idea. And, you know, the average consumer doesn't really think that. And, and, and if you even ask the average affluent suburbanite in the United States of America, oh, we were in Europe and it's just so beautiful. And, and here's the rules that they have. And there are, there's almost an ignorance factor. I'm like, yeah, they might be anti-GMO, but they truck in 
barge after barge of genetically engineered soybeans from Brazil. Uh, so, you know, like you said, all they've really done is supplant or, you know, is, is offshore, they've offshored their environmental uh, degradation uh, that agriculture is doing in places like you say in Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, you know, it, what I try to remind people is if we were farming today the way we did in 1960, we would need 1 billion additional hectares of land in order to feed the people we do. And that's a more than a quarter of all the forests left on the planet. So without that improvements in agriculture in terms of technology, innovation and management practices, we would have one quarter fewer, for, you know, uh, yeah, land. Yeah. And so, and just by dramatic. the way, you're trying to show us that you're European using the word hectare. A hectare for the, <laughs> the, the poor listener that doesn't know what a hectare is. A hectare is about what, two point four acres? Yeah, that's right. But I just don't know the math in terms of. <laughs> I know it's a quarter of all the land. Yeah, so the point <laughs> is, it's a whole bunch. Yeah. And yeah, I find it interesting that um, you know, I it was it was one of the group, maybe World Wildlife Fund. There's one of the organizations that actually doesn't have their head up their ass. They're not just going out uh, beating the drum that, you know, agriculture is bad. And they actually uh, say, we need the kind of agriculture that North America has, because only through that will we indeed then not keep, uh, you know, grabbing more acres, as you say. And I believe it was a few years ago, I read there are more forested acres now in the United States of America than there were 100 years ago. So, you know, right. we're coming out of World War One, uh, you know, time frame. We're talking about 100 years ago. There was there's more wooded acres in the United States today than there were 100 years ago. And I've, I've read that a couple of times. You have as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, anybody who's hiked the Appalachian Trail or, you know, uh, gone to Western Virginia, you know, all of those mountaintops were all cut down, you know, that, that was, you know, all denuded. And now, you know, those are forests where, you know, people go, you know, on the weekends and, you know, nobody realizes what it looked like, you know, not that long ago. I can even take you to little patches around here, the kind of patches that we farmed 40 years ago when I was a kid uh, that now uh, are wooded <laughs> because they weren't that great of farm ground. Anyhow, they were odd shaped, small, whatever, yeah. rocky, and the best and highest and best use for them uh, ended up going into the CRP program and have trees planted on them. So we're doing, we're doing okay um, in, in agriculture. And you and I are, are big fans of the things that we are doing. What are we doing wrong? What, what is it that the, yeah. the, the environmental groups, when they actually complain about us, what are they actually accurately complaining about us? What are we doing wrong? Well, I mean, the, the reality is, of course, I mean, you know, when you, there's eutrophication of waterway, you know, there's a lot of uh, nutrients that end up in the water that should, you know, we've got dead zones in the Gulf. We've got, you know, 80% of deforestation is caused by agriculture's expansion. So, you know, there are a lot of things that are happening because of agriculture, you know, methane from, from cows and other things. So the question isn't, you know, are there problems? Absolutely. There are problems. The question is the framing of the problem is agriculture, the problem that needs to be solved or is agriculture potentially the solution to the problem? Don't you have a speech or a book title something like that? Can agriculture save the world or something? <laughs> yeah. Well, one of my standard talk, can agriculture save the planet? And, you know, I just think it's really important, though, because if you say that, you know, agriculture is the problem and farmers are the problem, why in the world are they going to work with you in order to solve the problem? Right. On the other hand, if you say, look, you guys have done an amazing job. You know, agriculture today is wildly better than it was 30 or 40 years ago. It will be wildly better 30 or 40 years from now. But if we work together, we can accelerate that improvement together we can actually get to that more sustainable future you know by 2030 instead of having to wait until 2050 
So it's, you know, are you working together? Or are you sort of working at odds? And, and, you know, so, you know, we definitely need to address, you know, eutrophication of water. I mean, there's, there's some clear problems and that's because they're also um, shared goals, you know, <laughs> nutrients in the water is money out of the pocket of the farmer. Yeah. You know, so the interest of the conservationists and the farmer are very often very aligned. Yeah. And, and the thing is, uh, there are people in our industry that wouldn't think that. And there's certainly people that are outside of ag, which is most of the people, most of, yeah. most of humanity, yeah. and at least most of North America does not work in our industry, wouldn't understand that. Um, dead zones in the Gulf, you talked about this. I just read an article yeah. here in the last week about the uh, amount of fertilizer and fertility that we've lost. And I think it was just the state of Illinois as an example. In fact, it might have mm-hmm. been a state of Illinois or a University of Illinois study, whatever it was. And you're talking about a lot of these nutrients that we spend money on. And right now, more than ever, you know, with these fertility prices are, uh, you know, just watched a webinar and hydrus is up 144% year over year. You know, this is real issues. Anyway, we got a lot of fertilizer that ends up going down the Mississippi. And then what it ends up doing down there is creating all kinds of problems. And then, like you said, we got some dead zones in the Gulf. And, and unfortunately, that looks like it's agriculture caused this, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a plutonium mine, uh, you know, it was, it was us, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's the reality. And so how do we keep those nutrients out of the water in a way that, you know, has a return on the investment for the farmer? And we've, we've seen some improvements. If you look at the Chesapeake today versus where it was 20 or 30 years ago. And a lot of that has to do with partnerships with the nature conservancy, which is my day job now as director of global food and water policy. And they have, worked with uh, growers and producers. And so the Nature Conservancy, for your listeners who are not familiar with it, it's the world's largest conservation organization established in 1951, uh, has projects and programs in 76 countries around the world. But you know, by far, our biggest uh, outreach and network is in the United States. We're in all 50 states. And you know, we have 500,000 acres uh, under management of the Nature Conservancy. So, I mean, you know, we're walking the walk along with you know, the producers and grazers and others that are that are out there and trying to help them to ensure that they have can make a living mm-hmm. and that they leave their farm or their land better than when they found it. And, you know, we recognize that that has to be socially and culturally you know, relevant um, in order to get people to make those changes. Yeah. So uh, the, the Nature Conservancy, um, you know, when I think of, uh, I mean, I don't think of them often, but we see, we see, we see environmentally oriented groups that then generally are anti-agriculture. I mean, the Sierra Club, the Audubon Society, we can go on and on, you know, and National Wildlife uh, Federation, I think it was opposed ethanol. In fact, funded a study to come out anti-ethanol and, you know, what the hell they're all, why are, why are they, why is a wildlife group involved with ethanol discussions anyway? But you see this thing, and I think it was one of those groups, maybe like the Sierra Club or uh, Audubon Society, I think it was Sierra Club, Jack, that um, wanted to end all grazing on public lands. And of course, the agriculture people are saying, but this grazing, it's not just that we're making so much money off it. It's actually a management technique because, you know, you can prevent some forest fires and some things like that because of the way we manage it. But I don't think of the Nature Conservancy as being opposed to us, but I don't know, I don't know that they're, I don't know that I would have ever brought them into agriculture. So why do they hire you? What are you going to do as their director of whatever you are for the Nature Conservancy? Well, you know, uh, many of the people, if not most of the people that work for the Nature Conservancy are scientists that are working on the ground with, you know, 
people across the United States and around the world to help their make their farms more sustainable. So, you know, that's most of what the Nature Conservancy is doing projects on the ground, working with people. Um, you know, they're also looking at, you know, how to site facilities, you know, so it might be working with uh, companies on, you know, siting for water and other things. But, you know, for me, I, I was interested in how do we scale good ideas? How do we ensure that uh, at the same time that we're producing more food, that we do it in, you know, a way that ensures that the land is there for future generations as well. And that's future generations of farmers, not just, you know, for consumers. And I see when I look, you know, into the future, I see that, you know, we will be, get better every day, but that there are things that we could do to spread those good ideas more quickly if conservation organizations were working with those producers and were helping to scale those ideas. Because a lot of things just take time. You know, like cover crops, you know, just as an example that, you know, you're going to have to be able to convince, you know, farmers that there's a return on the investment if you want them to do it. Well, if we as conservationists believe that it's a good idea, well, why can't we go out and raise money to help ensure that, you know, maybe you cover the cost for the uh, farmer. He gets to try it. Five years later, we have the data to know whether it was a good idea or not. So, you know, farmers shouldn't take that added risk if we don't know there's a return on that investment. On the other hand, that's a perfectly reasonable thing for a conservation organization to go out and fundraise for, to prove it so that we don't have to wait so long for those ideas to scale. And, you know, this could be drip irrigation, this could be robotics, this could be, you know, uh, AI. I mean, there are lots of things that we could do to help proof of concept. And, and that's what they're doing on the ground. And my job is to say, okay, if it works on the ground, how do we ensure that when the Convention on Biological Diversity gathers these environmental ministers to talk about um, international environmental treaties, that there is a place and a space within those groups that doesn't just say, we're going to cut pesticides by 50% by 2030. It's, we're going to reduce the impact of pesticides on the environment while maintaining and growing production. You know, that we have that balance in there. I want to hear more about some of these projects specifically. Uh, before we get to that, I want to take a moment here for our good friends at Pattern Ag, one of our new sponsors, and they also have a great product that you should consider trying. A question for farmers and agricultural landowners. Have you ever lost yield to unexpected pest or disease? Well, of course you have, because every season you're forced to guess about some of the most important management decisions. But now you don't have to guess. Pattern Ag offers the most advanced soil analysis available today. In addition to a comprehensive nutrient analysis, like any soil sample survey is going to do for you, Pattern can predict next season's risk from the most damaging of pests and diseases, including corn rootworm, soybean cyst nematode, sudden death syndrome, and more. So for the first time ever, a single soil analysis can help you optimize your crop protection and fertility spend at a subfield, field, and operational level. Time to refine your management decisions. Time to optimize your inputs and maximize your yield. Simply go to www.pattern.ag and get started today. All right, so we're back here talking to Jack Bobo about the Nature Conservancy, and we're talking about what happens when these organizations actually work with the agriculturalists and the business of agriculture versus working against them. So 
projects that you're talking about, uh, Nature Conservancy, you mentioned cover crops. I believe that we should do more cover cropping. Uh, it's good for the ground. Why we allow our most valuable asset in agriculture, soil, uh, which is now selling for like $12,000 an acre in my part of the world. Why we allow that to just be barren. In fact, uh, to be tilled up for six months during the winter, to be blown away and washed away, I think is really uh, long-term. Uh, we're going to look back and say, why did we do that? Well, the tough part is making cover crops work in certain climatological areas, like where I am in Northern Indiana, it, it doesn't always work out. You know, you can't get it quite established while the plant, while your crop is still growing. And then, you know, you come into a wet spring. There's always some issues. That's why it hasn't caught on more. So for it to catch on, it would be good for the ground. It would be good for carbon sequestration if that's the new thing, but it's not quite there as a good business model yet. So are you going to see a time when the Nature Conservancy says for every acre you put a cover crop on, we're going to uh, incentivize you financially? Is that what's going to happen? Well, I mean, I don't think the, the Nature Conservancy is going to provide that incentive, but it doesn't mean that we can't go out and work for uh, fine you know, grants and sponsors and others who say, you know, let's let's give it a try and let's figure out how to do it at scale. And, you know, or we work with uh, seed producers and say, OK, you know, the kind of cover crop that's right for Alabama, you know, turns out it's not right for in northern Indiana. And so let's find the right cover crop. And once we find the right cover crop, then you can work with the seed companies to improve that cover crop so that, you know, it's, um, you know, maximizes, you know, whatever uh, dimensions you need. And so, you know, that as a catalytic um, partner, I think is something that we can do. And, you know, we just have a different voice when we're talking to the government saying, you know, yeah, you really need to, you know, subsidize cover crops or you need to provide uh, insurance uh, benefits. So, you know, if somebody used a cover crop, maybe they get a discount on their insurance. You know, there, there are different ways of incentivizing that don't require, you know, a cash payment. Got it. Uh, what what do you think, what would the Nature Conservancy as an organization, what would they like? What would they like to see out of agriculture? You know, we, say, we use the word sustainable. Again, it means 100 things to 100 different people. What, what does the Nature Conservancy want from us? Well, I mean, I think we want farmers to be able to, you know, be better in terms of reducing their soil erosion, um, you know, reducing the nutrient runoff, um, you know, maximizing yields and productivity, uh, you know, soil retention, you know, like the, all of the things that are good business are the things that we would like you to do more of. Sure. And, and it's not that you're not doing it. Like I said, I mean, it, it's being done and it's improving, but, you know, we need to get there faster. And so it's how do we improve uh, dissemination of new and good ideas so that they just make more sense to adopt at a faster rate? <laughs> Tell me what uh, you see in in the next. I think that agriculture is going to continue to get amazingly good at stuff. We're already doing less resources. You know, the necessities the mother had mentioned, these high fertilizer prices or even lack of availability with the whole situation, with the Black Sea and Ukraine and what's going on right now. I think it's going to make us use less stuff and still get really good yields. Um, well, I think we're going to be using some biologicals. We're going to be doing some stuff to get more fertility out of the soil. It's there. Whereas in the old days when fertilizer was cheap, we just went out and flinged it everywhere. I think that that's what's going to happen. And I'm not sure the nature conservancy is going to be the reason. I think it's going to be just economic necessity. What are your thoughts? Well, all of the improvements have been economic necessity. So, you know, I'm not giving the nature conservancy credit for those things, but I do think that, you know, 
many farmers are conservative by nature. They're not going to do something unless they really know they're going to get a return on that investment. And so by helping to cover that transition cost or by, you know, working with people to get those ideas from, you know, the research area from Purdue, from other places into the field, um, partnering with other organizations to make sure that what these new companies are saying are going to happen with biologicals really gets that return on that investment. You know, I mean, it's, you know, we're not just saying throw everything at the, the wall. We're saying, let's make sure things work. And once we know they work, let's get them out there as fast as possible. Because we're not supporting any particular product or technology or company or anything like that. Got it. What uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you think are are right now? Um, what do you think uh, agriculture? Looking at it from the perspective you have, what is it that needs the what's most glaring right now? What's our most glaring need right now? What should we be? What should be our focus right now? Well, you know, I, I'm I'm not one for telling people what they. They should do. Uh, you know, I, I feel like there are a lot of things that can be done. I think part of it is that, you know, agriculture needs to be part of these conversations. You know, one, you, you can't just stick your head in the sand and say, you know, I don't really care what the consumer thinks. I don't really care what the government wants me to do. Uh, you know, I think they should look at it and say, you know, we acknowledge that there are some challenges out there and let's work with organizations that are reasonable, that, you know, want to work with us to try to solve those problems. So, you know, acknowledging real problems, I think, you know, is important. And it's not because, you know, they're the bad guy, but it's because, you know, they have the greatest potential to actually improve these situations. They're right in the middle of it. You know, agriculture is in the middle of, you know, lots of issues globally right now. And I think uh, people are more and more aware of the central role that agriculture plays. So your role within the Nature Conservancy, then, what did when they brought you in? What was the objective? What do you think? They, what do you think they hired Jack Bobo? <laughs> well, I think part of it is that uh, I think how I talk about these issues. You know, my goal is to to bring people together to solve problems, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, a lot of conservation organizations historically the language they've used has just turned people off. And, you know, if I keep telling you, it's like, well, these are all the things you should do to improve agriculture, you know? And, you know, like you said, it's like, you know, Jack, you have no background. Why are you telling me what I should do? On the other hand, if I came on here and I said, well, you know, here are thing, 10 things that a farmer could do to improve, you know, they might be like, well, maybe I'll look into that because, it's, you know, giving them ideas because everybody wants to do better, you know, they're all busy. And if somebody can help make those decisions easier, I think people would adopt it, but certainly not from somebody who's, you know, insulting them or saying that they're evil or somehow destroying the planet. You know, that's just not going to work. So I think it's, it's really because, you know, I'm thinking very hard about how do we communicate with people and bring them together. You mentioned that uh, the Nature Conservancy has 500,000 acres that, that, that the organization owns. So grandma, grandma croaks and she leaves a million dollars to the Nature Conservancy and uh, they, they pay you. And then they also go out and uh, deploy this money buying acres. Um, I'm a farmer. I own farm ground. Um, yeah. If I was at the auction, I was bidding against the Nature Conservancy. I'd hate the Nature Conservancy because why are you, why are you competing with me to take this ground? So that's one angle. Also, what are they doing with it? Why does the Nature Conservancy want 500,000 acres? Yeah, well, they want to uh, 
see what they can do in order to improve the the land management on that land so then they can share those ideas with others. So, I mean, it, it's absolutely, and, you know, you can't just have, you know, 50 acres in one part of the country and think that you can, you know, use that as a model for what's happening across America. I mean, it's a big country and it's, you know, it's very different. Like you said, Indiana is different from other parts. And so they, they need to be able to do real research on real land, real working, you know, grazing lands in order to come up with, you know, data and science that is uh, then applicable to, you know, a broad range of landscapes. Mm -hmm. So are these acres being operated for uh, production agriculture? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, these are not, you know, taken out of production and, you know, conservation easements and things like that. So in some ways, you know, that's more of where the Nature Conservancy got started was it was, you know, let's buy up land and, you know, protect it. And, you know, over time, there's been that recognition that, you know, we, we need to use some of this land in order to produce the food. And so the Nature Conservancy, you know, is now uh, organized structurally. So we've got our uh, protect team, which is, you know, about how do we protect those forests and other things. But we also have our provide team, which is the team that I support, which is really aimed at, you know, how do we ensure that you know, food is produced that meet all of our needs in a way that's, you know, sustainable and nutritious. And that that actually reduces the pressure on that, you know, protect team to have to protect, you know, that land. I'm trying to think of then uh, on, on these acres. So is it reasonable that uh, that they say, okay, you're a farmer down the road and we're going to have you operate these acres, but you're going to do it with these, uh, with, with, with these practices? Is that kind of what happens? So certainly the, the Nature Conservancy is not developing standards that we expect others to follow. What we're doing is we're coming up with ideas and practices which we invite others to, you know, to use, but we're not saying you have to have these in order to get a, a Nature Conservancy seal. You know, that that's not us. We're not creating standards that, you know, or expectations. We are doing the science that gives ideas that, you know, can then be disseminated. Mm-hmm. Um you know, others are focused on standards and, you know, I mean, we, we engage in conversations around that because, you know, if standards are adopted, we want them to provide the right incentives. Uh, and, you know, that we see that happening in Europe right now. There are a lot of uh, sustainability standards that, you know, for my purposes will, you know, potentially deliver um, reduced impact in Europe, but, you know, may increase impact else, other places. And that's not the sort of thing we want to do. We want to avoid, you know, sending our problems someplace else. Yeah, like we just talked, the, the Brazil example is a great example. Yeah. yeah, well, the person, the 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 suburban Parisian can feel very good that they that they supported the farm to fork, uh, you know, initiative uh, instituted by the European Union. But like you said, that just offshored uh, the agriculture to another country where their standards are actually uh, quite different. In fact, it's probably yeah. more, more, de- more degrading to the environment on a per acre basis than it would have been in Europe by a lot. Yeah. Wildly. I mean, you know, there, there's a huge difference between, you know, farming a acre of land that's been farmed for, you know, a hundred or a thousand years versus cutting down a forest. I mean, you know, just the, the emissions from cutting that down, you know, doesn't matter how sustainably you farm that land after you've cut down the forest, you know, you'll, you'll never recover from that moment. I've, I've been involved in uh, meetings where they said that Brazil is not going to cut any more uh, timber. And, uh, and that's the deal that, that, that there's not going to be acres deforested for agricultural purposes in Brazil. Is that true? Uh, I mean, you know, Brazil continues to be, you know, one or one of two of the, the largest 
you know, deforesters on the planet. So in, in at least historically, if you were to uh, exclude Indonesia and Brazil from, you know, deforestation numbers, global forests are actually pretty much level or growing. Yeah. Like, uh, said, like, countries, like the United States, yeah. we're, we're planting trees. And right. It's just that uh, Brazil and Indonesia are, are are gobbling it up faster than we can plant it. So are they leveled off and stopped or you think they're still, they're still tearing it. They're still cutting it down, still cutting it down. And you know, that, and that comes back to demand, right? I mean, if there wasn't demand for palm oil, then there would be no deforestation in Indonesia. If there wasn't demand for soybeans and beef, uh, Brazil would have no need to cut anything down. A lot of these organizations like the, not, not, not like the, but a lot of these organizations, nonprofit, environmentally minded, uh, push a vegan lifestyle. Um, it's not natural. Uh, humans are omnivorous. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it seems like an interesting thing that they take on, but then it becomes kind of their cause almost like then you're, you're, they're almost as like they want to be, they're almost like a vegan group then instead of just a environmental group. Is this an observation that only I've had or is this something you've observed as well? Yeah. Well, certainly, you know, people who are, are vegan are extremely passionate about it and they want to spread their views. And, you know, it's, it's almost certainly true that, you know, a vegan diet is going to have a lower environmental impact, you know, I mean, if you're not producing meat, but, you know, there's also the nutritional aspects of meat, you know, it, it allows, you know, it, it's an easier diet for most people. Um, you know, most people, it is extremely complicated to eat nutritiously um, on, you know, a fixed budget anyway, um, with a vegan lifestyle. So the, the nature conservancy, you know, certainly doesn't take any position on, you know, lifestyle and, you know, consumption. Um, our view is that if you can improve all of agriculture, you will get a lot of those benefits. You know, I mean, the whole point of my book is that, you know, Americans though, eat about 200 calories more per day than we did in 1970. So, I mean, think about that. We, we if we were eating the same amount as we did in 1970, 10% of food consumption would disappear overnight. So we could talk about beef, we could talk about other things, but, you know, that's a pretty dramatic change. And, you know, certainly as an organization, you know, we're focused on food waste and other things that we can do, um, you know, because those things don't help anybody. Right. And so, you know, the, and sort of the, the final point would be that a lot of the arguments for veganism are counterproductive because what they really do is they set up this, you know, divisiveness. Mm -hmm. And for the average person, if somebody says, you know, you're, you're evil for eating meat, they will go out and eat a double quarter pounder just to stick it to them. And so, you know, that creates that reactance that, you know, is actually counterproductive. And so, um, you know, could we be eating more nutritiously? Absolutely. Should we all be eating more fruits and vegetables? Absolutely. But even if Americans chose to eat less meat, that doesn't mean American producers should produce less meat. Right. Right. Yeah, because because then, we're very, because we're very good at it. The feed yard, the we're feed very yard, good at it. The feed yards yeah. in uh, Nebraska that get uh, maligned by environmental groups, that's the most efficient means of producing beef in the world. Uh, you know, it just is. And we've got the ability to do so versus, again, versus grazing forests uh, that uh, obviously end up uh, degrading the whole forest. So, yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> but we can do that better, right? You know, because we don't want the nutrients from those CAFOs to end up in water. Uh, you know, if we can provide feed that reduces methane emissions from that cattle, you know, fantastic, right? So, yeah. 
by the way, uh, I think that we're going to see more of that. I've worked with some companies, in fact, uh, that are, are working on, they tinker with rations all the time to make it so mm-hmm. that the, but you wonder, is that, that's the reality, that we're making it so that we are feeding a ration that creates less methane. But yeah. does the consumer, is that, even if we accomplish that, is it, has there been so much maligning of beef that it's, even if we're, we get to where we're zero emission, uh, the connotation that beef is evil will stay with us. What do you think? Well, you know, it certainly the conversation will probably continue, but I think what's important to realize is that, you know, Americans or you know, people in general, they, they like eating livestock products, you know, so they want permission to do it. And so if you could have, address the problems, then you're basically giving them permission to do what they already want to do, which is is much easier than to convince people to do something they don't want to do. <laughs> so I I think that a lot of the concerns go away. Some people may continue, you know, for you know ethical reasons or animal welfare reasons or other things to to fight for it. But I mean I think if we actually addressed a lot of those environmental concerns, uh, a lot of the pressure would disappear. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think that uh then there's the other thing. I mean, I'm not saying this about the nature conservancy, but there are organizations that they need a cause. And so when the organization doesn't have, uh, you know, like I say, Greenpeace was begun 50 years ago to, uh, to oppose whaling. Yeah. The last three countries, Norway, Japan, and Russia haven't even had whaling fleets in the last 20 years. So what the hell Greenpeace, you accomplished your goal. There's no more commercial whaling. Oh, wait a minute. We don't want to have to get jobs because we are Greenpeace. So they just found a new cause. I wonder if that's going to be the case with agriculture. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think it's going to be a while before we, uh, you know, reduce the the impact to zero. So, you know, it, it's going to take a while to reduce uh, deforestation, you know, eutrophication of water. I mean, and that's not to say that things aren't, you know, better in many, many ways, you know, right. rivers today in America, you know, are much cleaner than they were back in the 1960s and seventies, you know, you know, rivers were catching on fire, you know, sure, for, right. we're going to say. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah, the Cuyahoga river, uh, you know, caught on fire 50 years yeah. ago, or 45 years ago. And, and now uh, it's, it's clean. Right. Yeah. So, Love canal. Yeah. So we're getting there. Um, like I said, um, Ideally, we, we keep getting there and we keep getting better and better and better. Does the Nature Conservancy uh, play a role in that? You know, you said you're sharing ideas, et cetera, et cetera. What can the Nature Conservancy take credit for? One, that seems like they're not, they're not anti, anti-agriculture the way some of the other organizations are. What else? Well, you know, I, I mentioned the Chesapeake uh, Bay, you know, they, they've been working for, you know, 20 years with those communities in order to create the incentives and, you know, things are, are wildly better. And I think, you know, many of the, the farmers in that region would say that the organization played a, a positive role in helping us to get where we are. Um, and, you know, part of that is as, as an honest broker, you know, that there is a lot of trust among, you know, consumers for some of these conservation organizations. And, you know, if they're saying these new practices are good or that, you know, we're working towards a goal, um, I think it often makes a difference versus, you know, farmers saying, you know, we work every day to make the world better. We're feeding the world. You know, that that doesn't necessarily resonate with your average consumer um, in the way that it would if, you know, a different, you know, voice, you know, some third party validator out there, you know, making some of those messages. And that's, that's why the collaboration is so important is, you know, I, I often joke that, you know, at the State Department, you know, at USDA, they do things. And when I was at the State Department, we talk about doing things, you know, you know, I, I'm still doing that, you know, I'm talking about what the, the Nature Conservancy is doing on the ground and what farmers are doing on the ground. But, you know, I, 
that talking about it is actually pretty important in order to, you know, to ensure that we have the space in order to bring these ideas forward. You know, it's, um, um, you know, trust is in short supply these days and you need that social license in order to operate. Do you think the Nature Conservancy will ever end up being like uh, this, this uh, thing that they, they endorse, they endorse certain things. I mean, is it going to be that we need, we need their endorsement uh, because they're, they are known. Uh, hey, Nature Conservancy says this is okay. This is, this is American beef, which is better for the environment than uh, beef produced in a third world country where they tear down the forest. You ever see that happening? I, I doubt that. Uh, I mean, I, what I do see is that, you know, we, we talk about practices being different in different places and that, you know, it, it might not be a good idea to reduce those, you know, production in the United States. You know, I, I've gotten into lots of Twitter battles with people, you know, that, you know, when I've pointed out that, you know, if, even if American meat consumption went down, that doesn't mean we should be reducing production because if we do, somebody else will step up and, you know, Europe, you know, is just that prime example. Almost everything they're doing will reduce production by eight to 10% over the next, you know, 10 years. And, you know, that's going to dramatically increase the global footprint of ag, you know, in a very negative way. And so as an organization, I think we're not saying that what Europe is trying to do is wrong, but we're saying that, you know, if you're going to reduce the footprint, you need to maintain the production, you know, that it's not, it's not good enough to just reduce uh, production. Do you think this is the last point? Do you think that we're going to end up doing that in America? Do you think that eventually we become like Europe, whereas this sort of misguided altruistic, um, uh, uh, save the world sort of belief, but really what we do, we've done it with manufacturing, right? You know, we don't make light bulbs in the United States anymore because, you know, it's nasty. So we make them in, you know, some of in China and ship them over here. Is that going to happen to food? Well, I, I think that if consumers, uh, you know, obviously, you know, science tells us what we can do. It's the public that tells us what we should do. So as a producer, you know, you're only going to produce what people are willing to buy. And if people, you know, won't buy the things that are sustainably produced, um, you know, then you'll, you'll change your practices. But that's where, you know, we, we absolutely have to have conversations with the food companies as well, because it's how they market the things to the consumer, you know, that determines whether or not consumers, you know, want this type of product or that type of product. And right now, consumers are really focused on redu- reducing, reducing fertilizer, all of those yeah. things. And we need them to understand that there are trade-offs. And those trade-offs are generally impacting the forest and the environment and other things that they actually care about. And so if we don't figure out how to communicate that effectively, then yes, the U.S. may go down a path where we're actually becoming less productive and less efficient and less sustainable. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, it's, 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 it would be foolish to do that. But again, these things are usually not based on what the economics or even science, it, it becomes issues. Political issues become based on feelings, right? Yeah. And that's absolutely. What else you got for me? I'm going to close it out here. <laughs> Otherwise, I mean, I, I'm glad you came on here. Well, no, it's been great. And, you know, we didn't it, even fight. We, we didn't even, <laughs> we didn't even, we didn't even like, we didn't even have anything we scrapped over, did we? No, not this time. Well, I'll, I'll come back when you think of something to disagree with me about. <laughs> His name is Jack Bobo, and he's a sharp dude. And like I said, we bump into one another on the road. If they want to find you, where do they find you? So you can find me on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect. Um, also on Twitter uh, at you know Jack underscore A underscore Bobo. And you know, let's continue the conversation wherever you guys are 
willing to meet up with me. He does. He does put some pretty good stuff on LinkedIn. So I encourage you to go there. He and I keep up with one another and uh, you know what? We see each other on the road once in a while. And the next time he's going to buy the drinks because I bought him <laughs> drinks last time. So anyway, Hey man, thanks for being on here. Thank you. All right. Till next time. It's the business of agriculture. This episode of the business of agriculture was brought to you by Nori. If you're feeling left out of carbon markets, Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com slash growers.